for another session of Q&A with Bishop Julian. You have here Javina Graham and Jeremy Ambrose. And today we're going to continue on a theme that we've started developing in previous sessions, and that is the idea of a character for a Catholic. Now, Bishop Julian, I'm a baptised Catholic, and I want to grow as a Catholic. Are there specific qualities that constitute a mature Catholic adult? I mean, is it a case of just make your own sort of list of qualities, or is there something specifically uniquely Catholic about a character? I think this question of character is an important one today because in a way, when when people say, what does it mean to be Christian? People probably immediately say, well, it means to be a loving person. You know, we love God, we love others. Uh, it probably means we're compassionate, we're, we're kind, we're thoughtful. Now, these are all very good qualities, of course, um, and they are all, uh, they do constitute aspects of, of, of a character that's formed by Christianity and, and does reflect our Catholic teaching. However, I think there's also a danger that we, we, we kind of limit our understanding of, of the full nature of developing a Christian character. And now here we can, again, we base ourselves obviously in the teachings of, of Christ himself and we take Christ himself as our model. Um, we look to the scriptures for inspiration. But also, of course, over the centuries, um, Catholics have thought and reflected on this question of uh, Christian character and, and formation of character. I think there's so much more we can explore and develop to understand what are the component elements to uh, to to a character a character of a mature Catholic. Okay, but Bishop, there's also this um, strong push that you know that, that we're free, we're independent. You know, we should create ourselves. We should take control of our own lives, and and we're the ones that work here. Uh, is this right? Is this the right way of thinking? Well, I guess that's very much the attitude of the, the age, isn't it? Mm. Uh, we're in the age where there's an emphasis on the individual. We're always talking about individual rights, you know, my right. And so people talk about a right to, to self-determination. I've got a right to, to live my life the way I think. And, uh, and I guess, too, people, when they do want to go a bit deeper and try to form uh, something of substance to their, to their life, they often, these days, I think, move to notions of, of positive thinking you know the power of positive thinking there are all these seminars and gurus and programs and conferences you can go and normally fork out a few thousand dollars for the for the pleasure the opportunity um i think the view in the society is we do create ourselves and the key to doing that is basically through if you like the power of positive thinking so people say let's just imagine where I want to be. Let's let's think about my my goals and my my aspirations, and then if I just think about it long enough and hard enough, and if I commit myself to achieve it, then I'll get there. You know, I'm going to be a millionaire by the age of 25. You know, so so and a lot of these gurus will sort of say, look, that's all you got to do. That's all you got to do is just commit yourself, uh, be positive, uh, have confidence in yourself, and go for it. Mm. You know. Uh, 
Now, there's obviously a place for positive thinking. There's obviously a place for me thinking about my goals in life and the importance of what I want to achieve in life. Of course, that's right, and career and, and so forth. But there's a great danger, I think, today of people putting all their confidence in themselves, mm. all their confidence in their ability to achieve their objectives. And sometimes people set unreasonable expectations for themselves. I'm going to be a happy, successful uh, popular person, you know, mm. and uh, and all I've got to do is just that's just work at it through my, my own mind, my own kind of commitment to these sorts of objectives, and I'll get there. I, I feel a lot of people who set out on that path end up falling apart at some stage. It yeah. doesn't work out. They don't achieve their objectives. Now, the Christian has a different approach. Yes, yes, the Christian does see objectives, does see what it means to be a Christian and the qualities they'd like to see develop and be nourished and nurtured in their own life. But you see, we as Christians say, it's not just dependent upon me. A Christian lives a life of grace. A Christian lives a life where the power of, of God's Holy Spirit is present in us. Now, obviously what's important here is to engage the, the grace of God, to engage the work of God, we also need to be in tune with God's expectations, not just our own expectations. So I, I think today it, it is an issue. And I think when we look at ourselves as, as Catholics, as Christians, what we want to do is say, what would God want me to be? What, what are the qualities that really make up somebody who's close to God and reflects the character and qualities of Christ himself? I guess it must be very dangerous to, to lose sight of this. And as you said, Bishop, if people are thinking about themselves or or that I have to achieve something or it's all on my shoulders, if they set unrealistic goals, and I guess it must be dangerous when they fail. And that's probably what leads to depression and suicide rates. I think it can. I, I think people can, uh, you know, when they are highly motivated, they, they can set unreasonable goals. And sometimes, too, to achieve those goals, they'll kind of, walk over everything that's going to stand in their way, you know, mm. and, and they, they can lose perspective on, on other virtues like honesty, truth, integrity, things like this, because I'm determined to achieve my goals. Uh, look, we're also flawed human beings. We're mm. weak, we fail. Um, one of the very important qualities of a Christian, for instance, is humility. You know, I, we sort of say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm, I, I know my weaknesses and I need your grace to raise me up. I need your help to, to be able to, to be a better person. So I'm not just reliant upon myself, my own skills, my own abilities to achieve uh, the goals of, of growing and, and being formed and sort of person I want to become. Bishop, all this seems, I mean, we can talk about the goals and everything, but it seems to spring from a deeper understanding of, that maybe not everyone thinks about. Now, how do, how do we go about understanding our human nature? I think that's a key. I, I think before we can really understand how to grow and develop and mature as human beings, we have to have a clear, realistic understanding of the nature of ourselves as human beings. And there are a couple of, a couple of points I think that are critical here. I think the first one, you know, what we, we believe as, as Catholics, we believe as Christians, God created us. We're not just the random results of an evolutionary process. Now, why that's important is, is first it says to us, that we are created from a God who is a God of love. So one of the very fundamental things is that every believer has this sense of the fact that I'm loved by God. I don't think we should ever dismiss that. See, if I'm just 
the random result of an evolutionary process. Somehow it's just me. That's all there is. I mean, I've, I've come into this world um, and, and sure, I've had love and support my family and friends and so forth. But in terms of my total self, I, I, I don't have that confidence, I think, that comes when you're, when you're, when you're a Christian saying, no, God loves me. God has created me. And the other thing that is that, that theme that runs through the story of creation, the book of Genesis, God, as God created it, it is good. You know, we are, we are basically created good. That There's an essential, and we see this in ourselves, there's an essential goodness to our human nature. So I, I think that's a starting point to say we've been created by a God who loves and he's done this magnificent job in creating the universe in all its spectacular array and diversity and beauty. And he's created each one of us. And we too are a reflection of this, this, this goodness of God. Um, and there is an essential goodness about our creation. However, it doesn't stop there because we also know there's another reality. There is sin, there is evil, there is failure. There are, there, there's, there are all these things that also we, we struggle with in, in ourselves. That, and the book of Genesis again tells us a story that uh, when God created us as human beings, he gave us probably the, the most sacred thing about us. He said, I'm gonna give you free will. I'm not gonna force you. I'm not gonna make you like robots or automatons just to do exactly what I say. I'm gonna give you, because I love you so much, I'm gonna give you the freedom to love me in return or not. I'm gonna give you free will. And of course, as we know, humanity turns back on God. Humanity said, no, I wanna go my way. And the story of the book of, in the book of Genesis, the story of the fall is really, we often call it disobedience of, of, of Adam and Eve. They, they're not gonna to listen to God. They're gonna to listen to what they wanna do themselves. Self-will has come into play. And out of that has come all the reality of sin that we, that we know, the struggles we have in our daily life. You know, St. Paul, I think, captures beautifully when he said in his letter to the Romans, what's in me is I want to do good, but I keep doing things that aren't good. And he says in the end, in chapter 7, he said, who will save me from this body doomed to death? Like he's saying, I just can't realise in my life what, what I would like to be able to do. So, so, and of course, that's when the story then uh, comes about God sent his son, the action of Christ, dying on the cross to save us and crying out from the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. It's like Christ saying, Father, receive all of humanity in its, in its sinfulness and forgive them, grant them forgiveness. And of course, that's what his death did, he's freed us from sin. And then freeing us from sin and, and, and death as a result of his own death and resurrection, he then gave forth the Holy Spirit. And so the way God continues to save us is through the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit, the grace. We, we as Christians live a life under grace. So in other words, we don't see ourselves as having to, just by our own efforts, achieve what we would like to achieve in terms of the formation and development of our character. Rather, it's a case that, that we, yes, have to make decisions and choice, we have to believe, but we, we know there's going to be ultimately the grace of God that's at work. And God wants to recreate us. God wants to raise us up. God wants us to be his sons and daughters, to reflect the, the truth, the beauty, the goodness that he wants us to have. And so his Holy Spirit is an active agent achieving that in our life. So the Christian has a whole different approach to growing and maturing. It's yes, we set ourselves goals and objectives, but more importantly, we don't just rely upon ourselves. It's not just power of positive thinking. 
saying, God, I turn to you humbly and say, I need your help. I need your grace. I need your inspiration to work in my life to achieve this. So this understanding of the human person, created, created good, created out of love, fallen by our own disobedience, our own sinfulness, our own willfulness, saved by the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and now being redeemed, an ongoing process of redemption through the grace of God. That's what we call the Christian anthropology. That's the understanding of human life from a Christian perspective. I think that provides the basis for how we can grow in, in character and mature in the Christian life. What a uh, wonderful reminder on, of Christian anthropology, something we perhaps don't hear enough. Thank you very much, Bishop Julian. Thank you, Bishop. because it's time for my favourite part of Q&A. Did you know with Bishop Julian Bordius? I suppose this is the time when, when I turn the tables. You, you ask me questions at the beginning and now it's my turn to, to ask you. Just a little um, question in relation to uh, religious life in Australia. Of course, with the canonisation of, of uh, St Mary MacKillop and the, the whole focus on the Josephite order, I guess in a way we can think, well, the, 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 the great... Uh, religious order in Australia were the Josephites, and indeed they are a great religious order who've done fantastic work uh, under the inspiration of St Mary MacKillop. But Jeremy, would you know who were the very first nuns to come to Australia? The first nuns to come to, to Australia? Australia? Or yeah, to start we, an order here? Yeah. To, to, to come to Australia. So just like we had the first priests who came, uh-huh. I just thought it was an interesting question. Well, when did nuns arrive and, and what did they first do? So would you have any, any possibility? Uh, um, I can't say that I do, Bishop. I think you'll have to fill us in. The, the, first, the first nuns who arrived actually were in the year 19, uh, 1838. Um, so, you know, a little time into the, the life of, of the colony. Um, the first religious order to arrive were the Sisters of Charity. So they're the sisters associated with, um, with St. Vincent de Paul. Mm-hmm. And they arrived. Now, when they first arrived, the governor of the time, Governor Gibbs, um, allowed them to visit the, the, the women who were in the, what we call the female factory. It, it, excuse me, out of Parramatta, there was a, a jail for women. And, uh, and so the sisters, again, in that spirit of St Vincent de Paul, asked if they could go and, and help the, the, the women in the, what was called the female factory. So they went out there and they taught them domestic skills and they supported them and helped them. So when they left the, the jail, they'd be able to get employment and so forth and also obviously ministered to their to their spiritual spiritual needs um, the first convent was built uh, just two years after their arrival in 1840 so the very first convent in australia was 1840 the um the interesting thing in terms of our history was that um, the sisters then also got hold of a property over at potts point and which belonged to governor Bly's daughters and, uh, and and there they initially established a, a school uh, for girls at Potts Point, but of course later on they also moved into hospital work. And in 1870, they established what is now a very famous hospital in Sydney, St Vincent's Hospital in Darlinghurst. Mm. So the initial sisters were the Sisters of Charity, and their work was very much charity work among the, the female prisoners. Established in school for girls at Potts Point, 
and then responsible for establishing what was one of the great hospitals in Australia, St Vincent's Hospital at, uh, at Darlinghurst. Wow, thank God for the Sisters of Charity. Yes, we will. You've been listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteous. For more episodes, visit radio.com.